Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have allowed us to be in this place, either physically or virtually, uh, to be with our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and most importantly, to be together in your presence. You promise where two or three are gathered in your name that you are with them. And so we don't believe that this is just uh, a gathering of people this morning. Uh, this is not just a show um, with some good singing and, a, and a, a public speaking event. This is an encounter with the living God. And guys, we turn to your word now. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us. Um, I don't want to give it away, but we're going to about to read it in a few minutes. This is a hard word this morning, God. And I pray as we just sang that in the midst of what seems like really challenging teaching from your son Jesus, that you would also remind us that he is our gentle redeemer, that his grace is more than enough to cover anything and everything. We love you. We want to love you more. And we need you more than we need anything else. And so we just ask that you would meet with us now and do what only the living God can do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Uh, I want to say very quickly uh, a special thank you to Elder Keith Richardson, who preached last week. A, f- a fantastic word uh, about what it means to be made new in Christ, a tour de force in biblical theology, and uh, I was blessed to sit under his teaching. I just want to say thanks, Keith. Uh, we have, as I alluded to in my prayer, uh, a little bit of a challenging text this morning. Uh, I do my best and I'm, a, I'm very, very much a work in progress uh, trying to figure out how to do this thing called preaching. I do my best to try and make it as conversational as I can. Um, but one of my favorite preachers who is no longer alive, and I never had him as a teacher, but he would teach preachers. I heard him say one time, uh, he was a big believer in preaching without notes. He said, you should usually preach without notes. He said, sometimes you should have an outline. He said, and sometimes you just need to read a manuscript. And uh, I may be reading my notes more today than I normally do. And I just want to give you a heads up on that. I may not. Even in this moment, I'm like, God, have I prepared the right thing? Which this is not the moment to be asking that question. And maybe that's too honest. But here we go. Buckle up. Uh, so I may not. I may just, you know, make it up as I go. Um, but if I'm, if I'm tied a little bit more to my notes this morning, uh, I just want to give you a heads up. That's why I want to be uh, really sensitive in the way that I talk about what our text is about this morning. With that, uh, meet me in Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Uh, We're in a series teaching through the gospel of Mark. And uh, today brings us to Mark chapter 10. Here's what it says. It says, And he, that's Jesus, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God on Family Sunday. I need to... uh, I need to confess something to you this morning. I love, love how it gets quiet when I say that. Uh, I will feel much better once I have gotten it off my chest. Last week, uh, my wife and I took our kids to Disneyland. Actually, that makes it sound like we did something gracious, like out of the kindness of our heart. We went to Disneyland as a family last week, and it was awesome. Anybody here ever been to Disneyland? Yep, yep. Um, first of all, I missed this, and I should have said it. Beth already got it, but I want to say welcome to the kids. Love Family Sunday. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, and that's why, partly why I'm talking about Disneyland. I want to know, what are your favorite rides at Disneyland? Yep. Yep. All of them. Good answer. My favorite was um, Radiator Springs Racers. And the Incredicoaster. Those are my, those are my two favorites. Uh, favorite food at Disneyland? Anyone? Dole Whip. Dole Whip. Yeah, Dole Whip. Churros? Churros and Dole Whip, yep. Uh, who's the baby in, in, in Incredibles? Jack-Jack? Little Jack-Jack's Num Num Cookies? Really good. Really good. All right, so we went to Disneyland. Uh, None of us had ever been. All six of us had never been. My wife and I have both been to World uh, when we were kids, Uh, but my wife and I said a long time ago when we started having kids, uh, we weren't going to do Disneyland or World uh, until nobody was in diapers, nobody needed a stroller, and nobody was taking naps. Now, I can still hit a nap pretty hard, but uh, that was kind of not what we were getting at. And uh, can I just tell you, every time as we were walking through the park, we passed a melting down baby. My wife and I just nodded at each other and kept, kept on going. So it was awesome. We had a, no, no one melted down. I, came, I was the closest of any of us, full disclosure. Um, but we had a great time. Part of what made it so great is that when we got our tickets, uh, we sprung for what they call the Genie Plus Pass. So this used to be the Fast Pass. I know someone here is like, I did not come to church today to learn about the, the logistical workings of Disneyland. I'm going somewhere, so hang with me. Uh, we, we sprung for the Genie Plus Pass, and it's kind of the, the way you can jump the line, right? They have a lightning line. It's done on your phone. You reserve a kind of a, a window to show up to a ride, and then when you get there, you can go in this Fast Pass lane and kind of go ahead of the the proletariat, the commoners, you know, in the regular line. Uh, for a couple of days, I just felt rich, and it was awesome. Uh, ironically, just yesterday, I read an article in Bloomberg talking about how everyone hates the Genie Plus Pass. Uh, so I guess it's the beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, it worked out great for us. The challenge with it is it's not really easy to understand how it works, and so it takes a little bit of time to figure out how it actually works. So by the end of our time, we were pros at knowing when to sign up, how to sign up, how to maximize our time, how to reuse tickets that little kids didn't want, all that stuff. But first morning was a little bit of trial and error, figuring out how this reservation system called Genie Plus works. So first morning we're there, we're up at 545 amazing. Actually, we're up that early, I think, every morning. We're in line at the park by 7 o'clock. 
uh, we're at Disneyland, and so everyone had recommended you got to hit Star Wars first. And all 15 million people who were there with us also decided they were going to hit Star Wars first. And so we're, we run through the park back to Galaxy's Edge, and we do the Star Wars rides. There's two of them. One of them you can't use the Genie Plus Pass. The other one you can. So we'd used it once. And after we finish the second ride, we reserve our next ride with this Genie Plus Pass. It's the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad roller coaster. And we're still kind of... We're still kind of drunk on Disneyland excitement, right? Not literally, but you know what I'm talking about, right? First morning, um, adrenaline's flowing. We're trying to figure out what this is going to be. How many rides can we hit? And so we reserve the time for the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, and then we start hustling down there when our window is about to open up. And as we're getting close to the, to the ride, we've never been there. We don't know where the entrances are, where the exits are. We're looking for the entrance, and we see the line that says Lightning Lane. As we come up to the line that says, or as we see the, excuse me, as we see the entrance that says Lightning Lane, we notice there's a very long line to our left, like hundreds of people in line. And we're like, we're excited to be at Disney. We paid the extra money for the Genie Plus Pass. I'm like, this is why we bought the Genie Plus Pass. We're going to skip this line. And so we go, we march right up to the front. You got to scan your phone on a little uh, like a little scanner if you're using the Genie Plus deal. And so Beth starts, pulls out her phone and she starts scanning our tickets. And as she does, I realize that the people in the line next to us, the hundreds that we just cut, they're going up to the same line that we are, scanning their tickets for Genie Plus as well. As the last ticket, as Beth scans our last ticket and we start to go through, my heart kind of drops into my stomach because I realize that we're, we're three hours into Disney, and we just cut the entire line for the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad roller coaster. As, I'm not making this up, this is a true story, as we kind of crossed the, the turnstile, I heard someone behind us go, well, I guess just some people feel like they're entitled. And I thought they were talking about somebody else, but they were talking about me, the pastor. Incidentally, I was wearing a t-shirt that said, I serve God at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, Mountain View, California. Uh, I'm just kidding. I, I, I wasn't. It was totally, it was totally a, a, a screw up on our part. We didn't, wasn't intentional at all. We thought we were doing the right thing, but we cut the entire line for the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad at Disneyland. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> We had that one snide comment behind us, which I, if it had been me, I would have had a lot more to say than that person did, so blessings on them. And we marched right up to the front and got on the railroad, and instead of, what, 45 minutes in line, we were like two minutes in line, and we rode it. I am not giving you advice about how to navigate Disneyland if you are to go. Uh, depending on the level of the mob mentality at the front of the line that you were trying to cut, things could potentially get very ugly if you tried to do what we just did. One morning, we were waiting in the line for security, like 3,000 of us snaked around the place where you can drop people off, and this Uber dropped a family off, and they just tried to kind of slide into the middle of the line, and the lady who was right there just yelled for, so everyone with an earshot could hear, you are not cutting in line, the back is back there. And they walked, you know, heads down in shame to where they were supposed to go. That's not what happened to us. But here's what I'm trying to get at. There is a difference between the way things are supposed to work and what we can get away with. There is a difference between the way things are intended to work 
and what we can get away with. See, the question, can you cut the line at Disneyland, is a very nuanced question. Because if you're asking, are you supposed to cut the line at Disneyland, the answer is an unequivocal no. But if you're asking, can you get away with cutting the line at Disneyland, I'm walking, talking proof that you can. There is a difference between what is supposed to be the case and what we can get away with. And that's not just true at Disneyland. That is true in so many areas of our lives. Some of us are really, really good at figuring out what am I supposed to do and what can I actually get away with. For those of us who are children in here today, less than 18, like this is a critical part of your development as a human being, is figuring out what am I supposed to do and what can I get away with? Like, are you supposed to eat your vegetables? The answer is yes. Do they sometimes end up in a napkin in your lap? Do they sometimes end up stuffed underneath the rim of your plate? Do they sometimes get fed to the dog who's underneath the table? And do you sometimes get away with it? Yes. Uh, for those who are maybe a little bit older youth, like middle school, high school, uh, are you supposed to be able to use your cell phone at school? I don't think so. Yeah, no. Somebody knows. <laughs> do you sometimes use your cell phone at school? You don't have to, you don't have to say it out loud. And do you get away with it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> there, there we go. Uh, and it's not just kids, it's adults, right? When we're driving on, on the road, there are little white rectangular signs along every road that you drive on that tell you what? The speed limit. The highest speed you are supposed to go on this road. That's what you're supposed to do. Do we follow it? Somebody said yes. Blessings on you, brother. <laughs> no. I guess I got to confess two things. Did I follow the speed limit on, on Highway 5 on the way to L.A. last week? The answer is no. And did I get away with it? Yes. And I have a bumper sticker on my car that says, I serve God at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, Mountain View, California. I, am, I don't have that bumper sticker. There is a difference between what we're supposed to do and what we can get away with. And it's not only true in life, it's we do it with God as well. Do we not? See, God, God has given us a, uh, I hate to use the word rule book, but God has given us a guidebook for living. This is it. If God is who he says he is, and we believe that he is, if God is who we believe this book tells, says that he is, and we believe that he is, that means he is the all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of everything, the source of life. He has no beginning. He has no end. He created you and me and everything inside of us. He knows every bone, every joint, every muscle, every fiber. He knows how our brains work, how the neurons work, how the synapses work. He knows how the prefrontal, whatever it's called, works. He knows how the occipital lobe works. Every question that every scientist, psychologist, doctor, you name it, in the history of the world has not been able to answer, God knows the answer to that question. He knows exactly who we are, how we were designed, what we were made for. And this is his word to us saying, this is how I made you to live. And we are these finite, simple, short-sighted, I don't want to offend anybody, but dumb compared to God. I know we got a lot of smart people here. Dumb people. And we get God's guidebook for life and we're like, eh, I think I'm going to try it my way. 
God has given us the way that he has called us to live. He has given us, he has given us directions. He has given us a way that it is supposed to go, a way that it is supposed to look. And every day, you and I are like, ah, I know you know everything, and I know that like, I can't even, but I think I'm going to try it my way first. And as I, you know, I, at some point, this is probably going to get old for me saying it, but I'm going to use it again today, as my favorite doctor likes to say, Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? Because when we say, you know, here's what God says, here's how he wants us to, here's how he says you're designed and made to live, and then we're like, ah, I think I'm going to try it my way. How does that work out? Generally, not great. Generally, we make a mess. Generally, whenever we try and do something in our own strength, in our own power, in our own way, we just end up messing it up. We just end up cutting the line at Disneyland. Sometimes we intended to, and sometimes we didn't even intend, didn't even intend to, and we ended up doing it. And that's what this passage today is all about. This passage is about God has given us instructions. He's given us a way that it is supposed to go. And we have taken that and said, ah, I think we're going to do it our way. I think, I think I'd like to try and do it my way. So as I mentioned earlier, we are preaching through the gospel of Mark right now. Uh, we're preaching through the whole gospel of Mark, teaching through the whole gospel of Mark right now. And what that means, uh, kind of unfortunately for me this morning, is that we're not skipping passages. And so today we come to a passage that is hard. It, it, divorce is hard. It, is, uh, it, it affects statistically, it affects more than half the people in this room. Either, either you've experienced it or someone in your family or your parents or your children have. And just, it's a, just by me saying the word in a public setting speaking, it can be a trigger. Divorce is hard, and for anyone who has any experience in the church or has been around the church for a while, like you might be feeling some kind of way as you're like, he's about to start preaching about divorce, and some of us might be like, all right, pastor, you better come down hard. You better not compromise. You better make it clear. And others are like, uh, you know, you're starting to brace yourself for the body blows and trying to cover your vital organs because you know how hard it has been in churches before when they have talked about divorce, and so I'm going to do my best in God's grace to kind of hopefully thread the needle between those two extremes. And oh, by the way, it's Family Sunday. And so uh, I just, full disclosure, I spent some time this week seriously considering should I uh, switch this around? Should I punt this to a, 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 a further week? Should I get something that's a little bit more palatable for Family Sunday? And I decided not to, very intentionally, because here at Abundant Life, we teach the whole counsel of God. And... Divorce is not just something that affects adults. It affects children as well. And children of Abundant Life, we love you. And we want you to know what God's heart is. And, and here's the saving grace of this message that we're about to look at, this message that, message that I'm about to preach. This text is not really about divorce. I mean, I know it is, and it looks like it is on its surface. This text is really about marriage. It's really about God's heart for marriage. And so I want all of us to, to know what God's, I want us to hear what God's heart is for marriage and what, he, what it can look like and what he hopes it will look like and what through his power we can actually do sinful, broken people coming together in the relationship that we call marriage. So we're going to dive into this together and, uh, and I hope and expect that God will reveal something to us uh, in the midst of what can be a really tender, tender subject. So we're going to draw three things out of this text. The first thing that I want us to see is God's intention for marriage. God's intention for marriage. So as we come to the text, Jesus and his disciples are moving along. We said a few weeks ago, uh, first half of the Gospel of Mark, they're in and out of the region of Galilee. 
second half of the Gospel of Mark, they're on a mission to one place, and that is to Jerusalem. So they are on, on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And we're told that Jesus, as is his custom, is teaching along the way. In verse 2, Pharisees come up to him, and this is like an example of same song, 547th verse. The Pharisees ask Jesus a question to try and trap him, to try and test him. And the question that they ask is this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now here's the thing, right off the bat, that is a disingenuous question. Because virtually, scholars tell us virtually everyone understood in in the Jewish culture at that time, it was lawful for divorce to happen. So they asked Jesus a question that they already know the answer to. And I love this. Jesus, in kind, responds by asking them a question that he already knows the answer to. So he says, going Socratic method here, he answered them, verse 3, what did Moses command you? And in verse 4, they say, well, Moses allowed us allowed us to get divorced. He allowed divorce. Mosaic law, Old Testament, uh, Moses did allow for divorce to happen. And Jesus responds in verse 5 by saying this. He says, yes, that was because of your hardness of heart. Now we're going to come back to that in a minute, so just hold on to that. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Then verses 6 through 9, he does not talk about divorce. He does not go into the finer points of here's when it's appropriate, here's when it's not appropriate, here's when it would make sense, here's when it doesn't make sense. He flips the question on its head. And he he doesn't say it, but essentially what he is saying is you're asking the wrong question. You're starting in the wrong place. Because starting in verse 6, this is what he says. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What does Jesus say in response? He says, you're asking me about divorce, but here's what I want to tell you about. I want to tell you about marriage. I want to tell you about God's heart for marriage. I want to tell you about his intent for marriage. And when you come to me, and your first question right off the bat is, how do we get out of it? you're completely missing the point about what it's supposed to be. Here's what it's like. It's like if you or I were to go to school to learn how to be a pilot, and the first textbook they gave us on the first day was how to navigate a crash landing. That's good information to know at some point, but you're not going to learn how to fly a plane by primarily studying the best way to, to land it in the midst of a crash. It would be like if we joined the army... And the first thing they did to train us was they trained us how to retreat. You might need to know that at some point, but that totally undermines the whole point of what you're there to learn. See, God's intention for marriage is so much more than what are the stipulations by which we can get out of it. God, based on what Jesus says here in verses 6 through 9, marriage is one man and one woman for life. Now, here's the deal. Marriage is God's idea, okay? Marriage comes from God. It's why Jesus, in verses 6 through 9, at least twice, he quotes passages from Genesis from the creation narrative because the institution of marriage, it comes from God. It doesn't come from philosophy. It doesn't come from uh, natural human inclinations. It doesn't come from some ancient civilization that was passed down. Marriage, the institution of marriage, the idea of marriage, the form and function of marriage was instituted by God himself. And as such, he is the one who gets to say what it should be like. He's the one who made it up. He built it. So he's the guy who gets to say, I don't mean to call God a guy. He is the God 
who gets to say, this is what marriage should look like. And here's what it is. Marriage is for our good, and it is also for his glory. Marriage fulfills a need and a longing in a human heart for companionship, for partnership, uh, for many other things. But I would argue, based on the teaching of Scripture, that marriage is primarily a divine show and tell. It is a picture for the world of who God is. A small, imperfect picture with two sinful people showing the world a small picture of the unity within the Trinity and the love that God has for us, his creation. It is a divine show and tell. And so what Jesus teaches in verses six through nine, three things I want us to see about God's heart or intention for marriage, and this is it. One, it's one man and one woman for life. God made them male and female. Verse seven, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now this is really critical, actually. It's one man and one woman, and they are to be committed to each other. Why does he talk about leaving their father and mother? Because one of the 10 commandments was you shall honor your father and mother. And so what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is elevating the marriage relationship to the second relationship in your life, second place in your life. First is God, and then next comes, if you are married, your husband or your wife, not your parents. Jesus takes a very high view of the commitment that is expected in a marriage relationship. And then the last thing he says, verse 9, or, or excuse me, uh, verse 7, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It is a union ordained, ratified, and created by God himself. That verse nine is the linchpin, I think, to understanding all 12 of these verses. Jesus is saying that the marriage relationship is not just something that two people decide to get together and do, but in some mysterious spiritual way, when a marriage happens, God has, has knitted those two people together in a, in a divine, supernatural way that goes beyond a human relationship. God is the center of the marriage relationship and he is the one that fuses husband and wife together. One man, one woman for life, leave their parents, committed to each other, ordained, ratified, sealed by God. That is God's heart. That is his intention for marriage. But we have distorted it. Sin has distorted it. And so the second thing I want us to see in this passage is our distortion of marriage. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're like, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what they are coming with in that moment is an approach to marriage that it is a disposable contractual agreement. A disposable contractual agreement. Does that sound familiar? There were several schools of rabbinic teaching back then. Uh, the conservative rabbinic schools would say that divorce was lawful uh, only in the case of unfaithfulness. The, the liberal rabbinic schools would say divorce was okay if your wife cooked a meal that you didn't like. If you woke up one morning and decided she didn't please you anymore, that was grounds for divorce. They were coming at it in the idea that it was a contract. And the way that a contract works is if one person doesn't uphold their side of the contract, it can be nullified. But Jesus, in responding to them in verse five, what does he say? 
He says, Moses allowed you to do this. Why? Because of your hardness of heart. He's saying it was a concession. It was a concession to your sinfulness. He was not saying Moses uh, ordained it. He was not saying Moses promoted it, encouraged it, or wanted to see it happen. He simply is saying that Moses permitted it because you were going to do it anyway. He's referring here to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and there are actually scholars who believe that, that what Moses says there is actually to protect the woman in the case of a husband uh, uh, divorcing her and not, being, not doing it in the right way. So actually, there's some argument that it could actually be it was for, it was for protection that Moses allowed it. But Jesus says, it is, it, you have distorted, you have distorted God's intention for marriage when you are simply looking for reasons or ways that you can get out of it when it does not provide for you what you want anymore. And then we go down to verse 9. And he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And let us not miss what he is saying here. And I I'd said it already, but let me just repeat myself. He is saying that in marriage, God joins husband and wife together. So he takes two separate things like this. And somehow in his divine power, God brings them together like this. And so Jesus is saying, who are you? to say what God has joined together, what God has built up, I am going to tear down. What God has put together, I am going to pull apart. Jesus is saying that is a distortion. It is, that is not what God intended for marriage to be. It is simply a concession for what, to what sin, has, the, the, the havoc that sin has wreaked in your lives and in your relationships. They were distorting God's heart for marriage. And, you know, here we are today and, and, and we continue to do the same thing. Do you know what happens every morning? Well, I, I ask questions like that a lot. And it's like there's 4,000 answers you could, you could give to that. Uh, a miracle happens every single morning. Every single morning, this, uh, this ball of rock that we are all living on, that we call earth, that is, that is hurtling around a flaming ball of gas at 67,000 miles an hour. Every morning it completes another rotation and the sun rises in the east. Here it rises over the mountains, which is amazing. Simultaneously as that is happening, our alarm clocks are going off. And for the last five, six, seven, if it was a good night, maybe eight hours, we have essentially been dead to the world, and yet our hearts have continued to pump, our lungs have continued to draw breath, our brains have continued to be active, and as the alarm clock goes off, and the sun comes up over the mountains, and we go from unconsciousness to consciousness, and our heart continues to beat, and our lungs continue to draw breath, we just throw back the covers and leap out of bed and we rejoice because today is a new day that we can live and move and have our being. Not so much, right? <laughs> How do most of us come into the day? Oh, here we go again. Do you see the distortion? It is a miracle that we get to wake up every morning and we get to have another day with life and breath and movement here on this earth. And most of us wake up and we're like, oh man, here we go again. Now look, I know life is not all sunshine and roses. I totally understand that. 
Actually, even as I say that, I have a daughter named Rose, and I'm like, I live in California, I have a daughter named Rose. So for me, most days are sunshine and Rose. But I understand life is hard, and it's disappointing, and there's, there's, there's challenges and sadnesses and frustrations and, and hardships, but it is a gift. It is a miracle that every morning the sun rises again and we get to face life and do life and live and move and breathe and have our being. And it is so easy for us to look at it and be like, ah, here we go again. That is what the Pharisees were doing with the institution of marriage. It is a miracle. It is a miracle of divine proportions that God somehow, in his power, can take two different, sinful, broken people somehow bring them together, join them together so that two become one. And again, not in anything they can do on their own, not in any power they have on their own, but in his mercy and grace, he can actually cause them to live a life that in a small, imperfect way paints a picture for the world of his love for his creation. And the Pharisees were like, yeah, but, but how can we get out of it? And we kind of are doing the same thing today. We have taken something that is an amazing miracle of God and we start by saying, all right, but what are the stipulations by which I can get out of this? Because it's not working. It's not working for me. Now, here's the challenge of this sermon and this is the part where I may start running to my iPad. Uh, It's kind of easy to talk about that at a theological, theoretical level. Like, that sounds good and I think that's what, hopefully you're like, yes, Pastor Gary, I see where you you can, like, that's what scripture seems to be teaching here. That's God's heart for marriage. You know, we've kind of distorted his intention. But it is a different thing when the rubber meets the road. It is a different thing when we come down to real life and we talk about lived experiences of you and me and everyone else in this room and watching on the live stream. Because the theory goes away really fast when two broken, sinful people are trying to figure out what it looks like to actually live together and love each other and serve each other in a committed relationship for the rest of their lives. Marriage is hard. It is hard. I will be the, I I will, I know from experience that marriage is hard. And I know this. I know that every, every message our world and our culture preaches to us is the exact opposite of the 12 verses we are reading this morning. Every message our world and culture sends to us is you do you, your happiness matters most, don't let somebody else bring you down, if, if, if it's bad for you, get out of it. But, but one of the major themes that we have been sitting in here in the Gospel of Mark is the theme of discipleship, the theme of what it means, the cost, what it means to follow Jesus with our lives. Over and over, Jesus is talking about what it means. Mark is talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And and the picture that he paints is that the call to discipleship with Jesus Christ is a call to a radically countercultural life. If Jesus has called you to follow him, the expectation is that your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and the media and celebrities and everybody else that we get influenced by is all going that direction. And Jesus is going to call us to step into the stream and go opposite of the way that it is flowing. And I am not sure there is an area of our lives where that is more true than when it comes to marriage. Because God is calling us not to treat it flippantly, not to treat it loosely, 
not to see it as a disposable contractual agreement, but as a covenant. A covenant between two people, three parties, husband, wife, and God. Ratified by God, joined together by God, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. He is not saying it is easy. He is not saying that your happiness is most important. He is saying that when you got married, God was involved in that process. And do not take lightly undoing what God has done. Can you cut the line at Disneyland? You can get away with it. Are there going to be consequences? There might be. I think of the story of David. I, you know, I, think it's, I think he's one of the saddest stories in all of Scripture. Had this just amazing run. And then uh, so many of us know the story of him in, in Bathsheba. And look, after that happened, he repented. He was forgiven. He is still called a man after God's own heart. He is rejoicing in heaven with God today. But do not think there were not consequences to his actions. His life was a train wreck from that point forward. So, so here's the deal, and I can't even believe I'm going to say this. Um, is, is divorce lawful? I mean, I, I, I don't want to because it's the wrong question. It's like Jesus is saying, that's the wrong question to, a- to ask. But, but like so many of us I know are sitting here like, so is it lawful? Is it, can Christians divorce? And part of me wants to be like, no, like I'm not going to answer that question because that's the whole point of this passage is that's the wrong question to ask. But I also want to be clear. And I also want to just not stay up in theology land, but bring it down to real lived experience land. Is, is divorce okay for a Christian? If you, if you look at what Jesus says, the answer is no. But if you look at what Moses says, the answer is you can get away with it. And so I just want to come with as much grace as I possibly can. There are going to be instances, and please don't like, my pastor said divorce is okay. Like that's not what I'm saying here. But I also have done enough life. I have sat with enough people who are walking through this. There are going to be instances where that is the final and only option. But hear me when I say this. Those instances are way fewer and way further between than any of us are willing to give credit for. In, 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 in cases of, of gross, repeated, unrepentant violation of the marriage vows, there at some point, it could become an option. But it is not the first option. It is the last resort. Divorce is the nuclear option. And I'm not talking about like the nuclear, nucleus, nuclear family. I'm talking about nuclear war. Divorce is the nuclear option. And if, if you are like my marriage today is on life support, I, I just my encouragement to you is take it off the table. Because for every instance where there has been a marriage that has broken down, there are, there are dozens more. There are marriages in this room today watching online that have walked through the darkest place you could ever imagine. And God in his grace and mercy has come in and redeemed it and continued to paint a picture of his love and grace and kindness to the world through the redemption of that marriage. It is one man and one woman for life. It is not a contract. It's a covenant. What God has joined together, let not man separate. But here's the, here's the last thing I want to say. Uh, based on the statistics, many of us in this room have divorce in our story. Whether you've experienced it, whether it was your parents, whether it was a, a child, a relative, a friend, whatever it is, many of us have this in our story. And here's what I want us to hear today. The last thing I want us to talk about is God's grace. God's grace is more than enough to cover it. 
Listen, there is a difference between what we are supposed to do and what we can get away with. But see this, God's grace is more than enough to cover it all. God's grace is more than enough to cover it all, whatever your story is, whatever relationship to to divorce or unfaithfulness is in your story, God's grace is more than enough to cover it. And I'm gonna do something crazy, I'm gonna try and draw that out by looking at verses 10 through 12. Now listen to me, Uh, verses 10 through 12, some of the hardest verses in all of Mark, in all of the New Testament, in all of the Bible. These verses have caused more distress and consternation and fear and anxiety than than almost any other passages of scripture for some people. Jesus and his disciples get back to a house and whenever you say in, whenever it says in the house, it doesn't matter what the house is, it's where Jesus is explaining to his disciples what the teaching was outside of the house. And the disciples ask him to, uh, to, to explain what he was saying. And, and basically Jesus says, so uh, if someone divorces their spouse and remarries another, that means they've been unfaithful to their original spouse. Uh, there's a passage in John chapter 6 where Jesus says some other hard teaching. And his disciples respond in John chapter 6 and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can receive it? And that's what I want to say about these verses right here. This is a hard saying. Who can receive it? And I spent longer on this part of my sermon than, than the, any other part this week. Because I sat with these three verses and I'm like, how do I soften this? Like, how do, I, how do I soften it? How do I explain this away? How do I help it make sense and not be so harsh? And here's the answer. I can't. The only thing I can tell you is that these verses, 10 through 12, are simply the natural implications of what Jesus said in verses 6 through 9. Jesus says in verse 9, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Like, who are you, man, to separate what God has joined together? And so he's saying, if you can't pull it apart, then that, that relationship is for life. So you're like, how do you see grace in these verses? Some of you might remember a few years ago we did a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus' most famous teaching and it's in the book of Matthew. It is basically like if you want to know what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, read the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount is a standard that is impossible for us to hit. We could never actually live in our own power the way that Jesus describes his disciples to live in the Sermon on the Mount and that is on purpose because the whole point is to drive us to him, is to show us how inadequate we are, how impossible it is to live up to God's standard. He is holy, he is full of glory and we are sinful and broken and we cannot close the gap between us and him and our only hope is his grace. So what are we to do if we have divorce, if we have unfaithfulness in our story? It is the only thing as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ I know to tell us to do and that is to run to him and to throw ourselves at his feet and to to plead with him for mercy and grace and forgiveness in our time of need and the guarantee is that if we do that, he will give it to us. His mercy is enough, his grace is enough, his forgiveness is enough. I wanted to take us this morning to that part in scripture where we are told that someone who comes to God and asks for forgiveness may not get it. But I can't take us there because it doesn't exist. There is no part in any, any place, anywhere in God's word that there is any evidence that someone who is coming to God and saying, I can't do it on my own, I need your help, I need your grace, I need your forgiveness, he gives it every time. 
every single time. So what are we to do if we, if, if we have this in our story? Hebrews 4.16. Sorry, iPad. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in what? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So we, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He is our hope. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation. And it is a sure hope, regardless of what our past says. Uh, I heard someone say this week, and I found it to be so true, Christians are the only people who kick their wounded. Does Jesus condemn divorce? Absolutely. You know what else Jesus condemns? Lying, stealing, cheating, cheating on your taxes, lustful thoughts, impure thoughts, greed, spending too much of his money on yourself, speaking harshly to your kids, meanness, selfishness, unkindness, Impatience. Should I keep going? You catch the drift? We're all, someone said keep going. <laughs> Listen, we are all in the same boat. So if divorce, if unfaithfulness is part of your story, you know what my message to you today is? Come on in. Welcome to the club. You are welcome here and you are loved here because I believe that Jesus is saying to you, welcome in. Come on in. You are loved and, and you, are, you are forgiven and, and, and you, are a, you have a place here. And if, by God's grace, divorce, unfaithfulness are not a part of your story, let us be really, really slow to start casting stones. Because if it's not that, it's something else. We are all in the same boat. We are all broken sinful sinners. Amen. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and for every single one of us, our only hope is God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. His grace is more than enough to cover whatever is in your past. This is what we're going to finish with uh, if the worship team wants to start coming up. As I was working on this message this week, I could not help but think about the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Uh, some of you know the story. Hosea was told by God to go take a wife. 
and her name was Gomer. And she wasn't faithful. And she kept leaving. And you know what God kept telling Hosea when she left? Go after her. Go bring her back. Go again. Go again. We're all Gomer. We're all unfaithful. We've all been unfaithful to God. We have all, through our sin, divorced God. But praised be to him, he has not divorced us. Because just like Hosea with Gomer, every time we flee, he comes after us again and again and again and again. There is nothing beyond his reach. There is nothing beyond his love. There is nothing beyond his forgiveness. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when we read your word, it is not always just um, steak and dessert. There's a lot of vegetables in there too. And uh, we know when it comes to our diet, we need vegetables. And so God, I thank you for the passages of scripture that are hard. I thank you for the passage of scripture that are convicting. I thank you, God, for the passage of scripture that causes us to rethink everything that our world and culture and our communities are speaking to us. And you're like, no, there's a different and there's a better way. I pray that you would allow us to take your word today to heart. God, I pray a special prayer for those today who have been affected by divorce. It is, it is a scourge from the pit of hell. And yet we know and we stand on the truth that you are greater than that hurt. You are, greater than, you, are, you are greater than the pain. You are greater than the sin. So I pray, God, that someone this morning would be encouraged in being reminded that they are your beloved child. And there is, no, there is nothing that has happened or could be done that you are not deeper and can cover it. God, I pray also today for marriages in our body, on the live stream, friends of ours, family, who, 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 are, who are at their end. God, I pray for a miracle. I pray, God, that you would do what only the living God can do. I pray that your love and your grace and your forgiveness would flow through in those relationships such that you will restore them. I pray that you would give them a hope that all is not lost, that there is a God in Israel who can do what man cannot do. I pray, God, that ALCF would be a place that is, that is, uh, that is a safe place no matter what we have in our story. I thank you, God, that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross even though we didn't deserve it. And as we turn now to the, to the communion table, I pray that you would impress on us the fact that though we are unfaithful, you are supremely faithful. It is more than we deserve, and we thank you for it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're not going to turn to communion. Uh, and God makes clear in his word that uh, the communion table is reserved for those who have made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of their life. If that is not you, we would just ask that you pass on taking communion with us today. But as I always say, there is no better moment than right now to make the decision to follow Jesus Christ with your life. If, if you want to know more about that, please talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. You can reach out. You can meet me after service. You can reach out to us at prayer at ALCF or info at ALCF. Uh, we're going to sit quietly and prepare our hearts uh, to take the elements. I would encourage you uh, to start
maybe opening the elements while we prepare our hearts. And if you have not received the prepackaged elements, I see we've got a few, uh, just put your hand up and we'll get you uh, the communion elements before we take it. Uh, let's sit quietly. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table. take communion, we remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only one who did not deserve the curse, took the curse in our place so that we might receive the blessing. Please take the bread. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Please take the cup. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. We're not gonna sing our song of response. Uh, This is a moment to continue worshiping God. This is a moment to do any business with God that you might feel the Holy Spirit has been prompting you during this service. Uh, This is a moment to speak with God, and I'll be back up for the benediction.
darkness the living truth and work in me in you you Lord you are the living word awesome ruler Lord you're a gentle redeemer God with us the living truth and work in me in you Receive the benediction. <clears throat> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you're prayed for and you're sent. <laughs>